Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm John Simon. We're back with part two of time management. Last time we talked about the importance of time management and more general concepts. And what I'd like to do today is I'm going to talk about time management from a particular perspective. And that perspective is the plaintiff's contingency fee attorney. My practice is personal injury. It's almost exclusively contingency fee. I think time management is so critical and any attorney who's handling cases on a contingency fee basis, it is do or die. You are either efficient and you will survive or you're not and you won't be around long. So what I'd like to do is generally talk about some fundamental concepts or guidelines and then in no particular order, some practice tips, some particular practice tips that I have put in place over the years that have helped me save a a tremendous amount of time. So the old quote, a waste of time is the most extravagant of expenses. And that quote was, what, a couple thousand, 2,500 years ago was a Greek philosopher. And boy, that still rings true today. You know, Eric, one of the things that I always think about, you look at folks like Henry Ford or Jeff Bezos, phenomenally successful. And yet they didn't create or invent. They didn't invent anything. Henry Ford, his fame to claim was what? doing something other people were already doing, but doing it more efficiently. Amazon, Jeff Bezos, same thing. He's found a way to take over most of the retail economy because he's able to do things more efficiently. It's the same thing with attorneys, plaintiff's attorneys, contingency fee attorneys, but it's even more so because if you're not efficient, as I said, you won't be around long. The business model, as everybody knows, plaintiff's attorneys don't bill by the hour. We take cases, we spend tremendous amounts of money, thousands of attorney hours, work on that case for two or three years. And if we happen to be successful in that case, we get paid. Think about that. Think about how important it is for you to pick the right case, spend the appropriate amount of time and resources on it. There are four fundamental concepts that I kind of drill into everybody's head at the office These really are the fundamental concepts that guide us in terms of our practice and specifically resource allocation, whether that's money or time. Number one at the top of the list, absolutely number one is case selection. This is so critical. I have told this to law students, to young lawyers. As a plaintiff's attorney, you're better off sitting at your desk with your feet up on the desk, reading a newspaper than working on a bad case. We have a policy at the office where we do look closely, very, very closely at every case that we take. I will encourage attorneys, mostly the younger attorneys, not to take a particular case, but you know, they're attorneys, they're professionals. And I tell them right out, if it's something you really want to take, I'm not going to, I'm not going to prevent you from taking it. That only happens once, you know, once or twice, because after taking a case that isn't the best of cases, it may be a tough case, and, and spending a tremendous amount of time and effort and energy and having it not turn out, that is the best teacher of all to make attorneys more selective in terms of what cases they take. It not only causes you to drag through your day, it just hurts morale horribly. The other thing, too, that's kind of funny is after you try a case and maybe it was a no-offer tough case and you got a great result in it, 
and it sort of makes you feel a little invincible. And we talked about the optimism earlier podcast where if you take a case with, with no offer, a case you shouldn't have won and you win it, that's great. It's great for that case, but it might cause you some problems in terms of case selection down the road because you start thinking, well, I can turn this around or I can do this with this case. But again, be very careful and go in with eyes wide open. When I look at case comes in the office, the first thing I do is how would I defend this case? How easy is it to defend? What are the weak spots? We probably look at 30 to 50 cases, depending on the type of case, whether it's a med mal or product and take one now. It ain't one out of 10. It's, it's, it's probably one out of 30 at best. And then that's the ones we take in the door. And then we do our due diligence, getting more information. Some of those we end up not filing, but that is the most important thing that you can do for your mental health, for your time, for your financial health. It doesn't help the client dragging them through two years of litigation in a case that is not going to turn out well for them. So number one is case selection. Second, what's necessary? And by that, I mean, what do you need to do versus what can you do? I mean, obviously some cases you can't do enough on if it's a huge multi-million dollar case and it's got tremendous upside, unlimited upside, you do whatever you can and you spend whatever you can. But there are other cases with a limited value. For instance, you got a case that there's a $100,000 policy limit and the case, you know, is deserving of $100,000. I mean, you can spend hundreds of hours and 20 or 30,000 in expenses, but you got to look at what's necessary. Okay. And that goes with the next concept. And that is keep the value of the case in mind. If you have a case, whether there's a policy limit or not, what is the value of that case? When that case comes in the door, you need to ask that question and you need to keep that in mind. If that case has a limited value, let's say it's worth a hundred thousand or 200 or $300,000, you're going to do certain things that need to be done. But at the end of the day, doing more things and spending more money, more of your client's money and more time doesn't necessarily, does it increase the value of the case or are we just spinning our wheels? And just to reiterate these last three factors that you mentioned, case selection, what's necessary, keep the value in mind. All of these fold pretty well into an earlier podcast we did that was, I believe it was called case selection. So if anybody's interested in hearing more about this, they can go back and revisit that podcast. I think we said in that podcast, Eric, the best cases for a plaintiff's lawyer, most of the time are the ones you didn't take. And that is true. That is really true. You don't want to spend your time working on a case that's just a bad case that's not going to work out. The fourth thing under the fundamental concepts for a plaintiff's contingency practice, get a trial setting. Get a trial setting right at the beginning. Nothing gets resolved unless you've got a trial setting. That's been my experience. Trial settings not only are an endpoint for the case, but it really makes you a little bit more disciplined in terms of the discovery in the case. Getting a trial setting in federal court, what a trial setting does, I think, is it focuses and organizes your work, your workup of the case. You've got deadlines. Without a trial setting, you really don't have deadlines. And so I think that's one of the best things you can do. Pick a good case, do what is necessary, whatever's necessary in that case. Three, keep the value of the case in mind. And four, as soon as you get that case and file it, the next thing you need to be doing is getting a trial setting. It really does keep the case moving and helps you get it resolved in a timely manner. Lights a fire under you because every week you're thinking, okay, what do I need to get done on this case this week to keep everything, keep it coming? We're recording this and during the pandemic still, even though we have a vaccine on the horizon, we're in a position where it's very difficult, if not impossible to get a trial setting. 
And you know what? When the courts do open up, we're going to have a ton of cases set. And the good news is they're pretty much worked up and ready to roll. I'd mentioned Henry Ford earlier. You know, Henry Ford was all about efficiency, doing things better, saving a penny here, a penny there, driving the cost of his cars down. And Henry Ford also was big into hiring efficiency experts. And he'd have them come in, look at his plant, look at his factory all the time with the question, how can I do things better? How can I eliminate steps? How can we improve what we're doing, do it more efficiently? And at the end of one of the reviews, he got the report from the expert and they said, look, you're doing a great job. Everything is, is just run in a very, very efficient, unbelievably efficient manner. But one thing we did point out, there's a very highly paid gentleman sitting in a corner office and he's one of your highest paid employees and he's got his feet up on the desk and we really don't know what he does. You should consider canning him, getting rid of him. And Henry Ford responded, well, gentlemen, that man with his feet up on the desk in a corner office came up with an idea last year that saved us millions of dollars. And when he came up with that idea, he had his feet in the same place on that desk. So it just shows you how you really need to think about what you're doing, think about how you're doing it, and how you can do it more efficiently. So what I'd like to do now is go through some practical tips that you can put to use at your office or in your practice. First of all, be organized. I don't know how in the world anybody can do what we do without being organized. And if you're not organized, not only is it going to spin your wheels and spend a whole lot of wasted time, but you're going to make mistakes. You're going to miss things. You're going to screw up the case. Organization is critical. Organizing your files, make sure your staff person, whoever's working with you, understands how you want files to be organized pleadings in a certain place. What I do with files, and I've done over the years, if something's in a folder in a file, you need to be able to look at the outside of it and be able to tell exactly what's in it. I think of that saying, it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. It is coming blasting at you so much stuff. I can't agree more about the organization. If something happens and it's important, you need to somehow capture that and keep it in a place where you're going to find it the next time you need it. Next, have set procedures and communicate them clearly. Make sure everybody on the team understands when a document comes in, this is what we do with it. This is how we file it. We make sure it's bait stamped, and this is going to save a tremendous amount of time and keep you out of trouble. Next, never do anything twice. And I'll give you a good example of that. You've got a set of medical records in a case, and you're going to take the deposition of a physician. You run through them and highlight them a little bit and put some tabs on them. And then the next time you're taking a deposition, you're pulling up the same records and looking at them all over again, okay? If you're going to review something, whether it's documents or whether it's medical records, do it right the first time. Make sure it's a thorough, careful review. Document them, organize them, make your notes. You're going to use them at trial. You're going to use them in multiple depositions. Next, and this is a big one, learn to delegate. I can't stress this too much. You are an attorney, and there are certain things in your cases that only you can do and take deposition, argue motions, certain times in meeting with your client, drafting a brief, argue motion at court. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to do anything that you don't need to do. Anything you can delegate, you need to delegate. It obviously goes without saying you need to delegate it to somebody who's got some smarts and knows what they're doing. I mean, you don't want to delegate something to somebody that you don't have 100% confidence in. I'll give you some examples. One big one for me is scheduling. 
And I decided many years ago, 15, 20 years ago, that I would no longer be involved in scheduling anything. I just don't do it. Part of the reason that I don't get involved in scheduling is my assistant does a great job. She does a better job than I could possibly do at getting things scheduled. And the other thing, too, is she always has at least a half a dozen items floating out there trying to find a spot on my calendar. And so even though it's not on my calendar, it may have already been called for. As far as scheduling, I just don't do it. The next thing is know the difference between what is urgent and what is important. And this is how you set priorities. I heard this years ago, but it was at a time management seminar. And somebody said, list all the things that you do in terms of how important they are. Everything you do on a regular basis, either weekly or monthly, list them one, two, three, four, all one through 30 or whatever. The things you do on a regular basis and list them in order of importance, not how often you do them or how much time you spend on them. And then they said, go halfway down that list, draw a line through them. And the ones on the bottom, don't do them anymore ever. Okay, in the bottom half. Focus on what's important, what gets your case moving forward. Is that necessary? Does it increase the value of the case? You got to ask yourself these things so that you're not doing things that are urgent, but not really that important to the case. Did you ever see the Stephen Covey two-by-two quadrant where he lays these things out? Yeah, I think I have, Eric. Yeah. In one quadrant, you have the important things that are urgent. He says, everybody does those. Another quadrant, you have not important, not urgent, and nobody does those. So those are the easy ones. But where it gets tricky is that you have two other quadrants. One where it's urgent, but not important. And people tend to do that stuff. It's just like things that bug at you and you know emails that come in, phone calls that they're urgent, but they're not important. And we tend to do those over the things that are important, but not urgent. For instance, developing a new plan for your firm. You don't have to do it today. You don't have to do it next week, but it's got to get done. And we tend to put that off. And these important things that are not urgent tend to just get lost. His point is that you have to make sure you keep those salient keep after those things and tamp down those urgent, not important things. Yeah. And I think along those lines too, triage your tasks. We have a case review meeting where we'll sit down with whatever attorneys are working on the case in addition to the paralegal, the staff, the secretary, and we'll sit down, make a list on overhead, what needs to be done. Let's talk about what needs to be done. And then we prioritize what needs to be done first, second, and third, and who's doing them, who's going to get them done. Focus on the important things, the things that need to move the case. The concept of multitasking, a lot of people say, I can multitask. I can do the one thing while I'm doing another. And I just wanted to put a pin in that and mention, I've seen research on that that says you can't do that. A lot of people think they can. When you're doing a task, it may well be if it requires intellect and a lot of resources, all your mental resources, you just can't do other things too. And I know that we're going to be talking more and more about interruptions, but I just wanted to put that in there and put it on the table. You know, Eric, you talk about distractions and trying to concentrate on two things at once. I know there are studies and information out there saying that PowerPoints, if you put information on a PowerPoint in front of somebody that requires them to read what's on the PowerPoint and you're talking at the same time that PowerPoint is up, they won't remember anything about either. They won't remember what they've read, nor will they remember what you're saying. And it's obvious, right, because you're trying to get somebody to concentrate on two things at once, and it just it just doesn't work. Here's something else, and some of the younger lawyers make fun of me in the office for doing this. I've done this my whole career. 
I use an index card, kind of old school, old fashioned. And every Thursday, every Thursday morning, my secretary and I go over what I have for the next week because the calendar is real dynamic. It changes, things get canceled. And what I do is I take an index card and I will write down what I'm doing the whole week. And I carry that card with me in my front pocket. I really do. I get an email or something. I just write it on the card. So I've got a view seven days ahead of what's coming, what I need to be preparing for. And I do the same thing with trial settings. And it really does help me focus on, on what I'm doing the next day. You might have a very significant deposition that's going to require a day and a half to prep or two days, and you need to get ahead of that. So again, it doesn't need to be a card in your front pocket, but at least have a to-do list of what you're going to accomplish each day. And my card doesn't just have what my schedule is, a hearing or a depot, but if there are two or three things that I need to accomplish that day, it's on the card. There's a lot of cognitive science involving attention that fits right in with what you said. A lot of people think because it's an illusion that you can attend to everything around you and keep track of everything. People are saying, are you paying attention? Well, yeah, I'm paying attention to everything. Well, you're not. You can't. Your attention is like a spotlight and you can shine it here. Or you can shine it there. And when you're looking over here, you're probably not thinking about what's going on over there with fleeting exceptions. And so it makes total sense to make sure you put your hottest items in a place that are easily accessible. And I try to be paperless, but there are exceptions. And I like that one, just a little list you carry around. You can always keep it right in front of you and remind yourself of what's important. And, you know, there's nothing better than just crossing it off. Once you've, once you've completed the task, it sort of affirms a sense of accomplishment. Cross it off, what's next? And we talked about this in the earlier session on time management. Avoid interruptions and also avoid interrupting others. And how do you do that? Well, if you're working on a brief, maybe you don't do it in the office. I encourage attorneys in our office to put a post-it on their door. Do not disturb. You know, if you're work preparing for a deposition, one of the most satisfying things that I do is to help mentor young lawyers. And I love doing it. And as I said earlier, you know, I never turn anybody away if they're knocking on my door. But one of the things that works very well, especially for the younger lawyers, make a list of things that you have questions about. And maybe if you can, save them for two or three days or the end of the week. And whoever you're working with, say, hey, do you have 15 minutes sometime this week? I got some things I want to bounce off you. And that's just terrific. That way you go in and say, here's my list. I've got four or five things. And not only are you avoiding interrupting somebody else, but you have their attention. You have more of their attention because they have actually set aside the time to talk to you about four or five things that you deemed important enough to schedule a time to talk to them about. You know, when you talk about planning, there is something called the planning fallacy. I don't know if you're familiar with this. This is one of Daniel Kahneman's many findings. It came about when he was in Israel, part of a committee at a school, and they were going to come up with a new curriculum. He got the best people together, and they were all excited. They're going to get this done. It's going to be a big deal. And after the first meeting, when everyone's full of excitement, he pulls the dean aside and says, has this ever been done before? And the dean said, yeah, it's been attempted about four or five times. Kahneman asked, well, what were the results on the other attempts? He said, well, they all started out very excited. They all had the best people there and they all petered out except for one that came out with a lackluster curriculum. His point was we all come into these tasks with optimism about how well they're going to go and how long it's going to take. And he said it's much more important rather than letting your optimism run wild that you're going to have a great meeting in five minutes to make sure you allow enough time. 
based upon your experience, and this would be like the Bayesian approach, what has been done in the past? How long do these meetings take and how long have they taken in the past? How much can you really get done in the amount allotted? So it's called the planning fallacy or the optimism bias. Make sure you allow enough time to get these things done because sometimes you just can't do enough in the amount of time you want it to take. And the other thing, too, is maybe this isn't absolutely correct, but really there aren't any legal emergencies you know, in our practice. Whatever somebody's rushing to do at the last minute, they probably had 30 days notice or 10 days notice. Legal emergencies are self-created. Plan ahead. Give yourself enough time. I had a young lawyer working with me years ago, and I found out, and I was, I was really shocked about it. He actually spent all night two, three times. I never had anybody do that. And as soon as I found out, I went down to his office and he was talking about, well, yeah, I just was working on a brief or whatever it was. But at several times, he had not gone home, worked through the night at the office. And I just flat out said, don't ever do that again. Just don't do it. Now, I can't imagine the quality of work somebody's doing in their 20th hour at 3.30 in the morning. And when I looked into it a little further, he's there because he's working on something that's due the next day. So plan ahead. There are no legal emergencies. If you're writing a brief, you know how much time it's going to take. You set that time aside. There is no such thing as a last minute when you're getting ready for trial. I have never had a trial in my career where the two or three days before trial wasn't occupied by whatever the other side is doing or filing or distracting. You need to have everything done ahead of time. You got the same amount of cases. You have the same amount of time to do it. You just need to be better at planning ahead and figuring out what time you're going to set aside to do certain things. Yeah, that's something we've both seen as trial approaches and all the motions start getting filed that will unfortunately occupy you. And it's part of life. It shouldn't ever be a surprise that that's going to happen. The next thing too, and this has been a big help in our office, and I want to talk about requesting handling and marking documents and medical records. You get a set of documents, whether it's a thousand documents or a hundred thousand, whatever it is, and you start taking depositions in the case. And for deponent witness, Joe Smith, you have exhibit one, two, three to one to 15. And then you take witness Jones and all of a sudden you got the same document marked as a different number. And by the time you go to trial, you've taken 30 depositions and you've used the same two or three dozen documents and they're different numbers and different depots. And sometimes you want to read them at trial or play them at trial. And they're referring to documents with exhibit numbers that are different than the ones at trial. It is a disaster and it just creates so much confusion and, and time. And so what I've done over the years is very simple and it works very well. I start out in a case with the defendant's documents. If it's a product case, I know it's going to be very heavy with documents. And if I have three defendants in the case, I will start out from the very beginning. Exhibit one is defendant A's documents. Exhibit two is defendant B's. Exhibit three. And they're all bait stamped. If you receive documents and they're not bait stamped, send them back. It's a complete waste of time to accept any documents, whether they're medical records or other type documents from your opponent if they're not bait stamped. Fast forward, you're in trial a year or two later and you pull out a document or they pull out a document and it's, well, you know, I, I didn't receive that or they didn't give me a copy of that. Well, if they're not bait stamped, you have no way of knowing what it is you got, what you didn't get. So number one, never accept a document in litigation unless it is bait stamped. And if it's not bait stamped, don't accept it. Secondly, you know, as I said, you might want to try 
numbering all of the exhibits from one party as a certain exhibit and just refer to them by the bait stamp number. That's why they're already marked for you. It cuts down on the confusion. And then when you end up going to trial, you know that defendant, whatever's documents are exhibit one, and we've got 380 of them. Same with the medical records. I mark the set of medical records from each provider as a separate exhibit number, and I make sure that they're all bait stamped. So instead of having 697 exhibit numbers, you might have 35. Each of them are bait stamped. And the real benefit here is it's not just helping you to organize and present them at trial, but it helps you with some consistency when you're taking multiple depositions in the same case with the same documents. I do something similar. I've had cases with a lot of documents where there may be three defendants and they've all marked their documents with a slightly different character before the Bates number, but they're all Bates stamped. So it'd be like defendant Jones, whatever Bates number, and then defendant Smith would have a different set, but they'd all say Smith and then a number, Jones and a number. So everybody's got distinct numbers on all the documents that they've given me. So before the depositions, I'll share a folder and I'll say, these are the documents I will have accessible. I may use all or some of these at the deposition. And I've had a funny response by some people. They said, well, you can't do that. You can't just have us pull up documents on our computer. I said, no, it's it's very easy. It's there. And it turns out they love it. So I'll, during the deposition, I'll say, let's bring up document 2032. And they're all clicking on their computer. Now they're looking at it. They all have it there electronically. I say, this would be exhibit Jones, 2032. And I've had people say, well, you can't do that. You've got to market exhibit A or, you know, something distinct. And I say, okay, it's defendant Jones Bates number 2032. That's my designation for this. And, you know, Eric, the whole point is you're receiving documents that have already been Bates numbered. It's so easy to just refer to them and use them by those Bates numbers throughout the course of the case. It makes it so easy. I can tell you right now what my exhibit numbers are going to be. (laughs) I know who the defendants are, and they're going to be exhibit one, two, and three, and each of them is going to be the set of documents that I received through the course of the litigation from those three defendants. Paralegal knows what's going on. The staff knows what's going on. So it is. It it just makes a whole lot of sense, and it's easy. It's very easy. It has another big advantage because let's say you have 12 depositions. And these witnesses are all discussing the same document, but it's been marked. And you've seen these exhibits by the time they make the rounds, it's got 10 stickers on it with 10 different designations. And so you can't word search it. You can't word search the transcripts to find the exact same document in each of these. But if you have the same designation, every time you pull it out, you can, you can word search that particular number and it pops up for everybody's deposition. So you can see what each of the witnesses had to say about that document. The next thing I would point out, and again, I'm trying to present this, or I am presenting this from a plaintiff personal injury contingency fee firm or lawyer. And the next thing I would say is pick your battles. Getting involved in discovery disputes and taking up writs and all this stuff. Again, pick your battles. Look at the case. Is it a $4 million case on a critical issue? Is it a $50,000 case or $100,000 case? And the issue really doesn't affect the value of the case. A lot of times we're fighting about things that really aren't worth spending a whole lot of time and, and energy. And you can get in battles and they just go on and on. And then you're spending all kinds of time and energy and effort. And it's hurting your relationship with the other attorney. Just pick your battles. Yeah, I think I have a couple of footnotes of that. One is some lawyers are just so quick to file motions and so much of that could be avoided by picking up the phone 
just talking to someone, figuring out, can we work this thing out? Another thing about pick your battles would be, for instance, on appeals. We had a guest on a podcast who made the comment, I don't get it why people file appeals with like eight points on appeal. You know, they think we're going to be able to really pay attention to all that. You know, we'll try, but you really ought to just pick your best points and go with them. Points one and two and, and go with it. So there's a point of diminishing returns to trying to say everything about everything or to do it in formal ways instead of just getting to it with picking your best shots and going with it. Absolutely. Another very good time-saving tip is I call them depot memos. After you take a deposition, you've spent two days preparing for it. You're in there questioning maybe three, four, five, who knows, six hours. And you know more about the issues in that case and the issues regarding that witness than you ever will. Every depot I have taken in the past 15, 20 years, as soon as that depot is completed, within 24 hours of completing that deposition, I will do a memo to myself about not just what was said in the deposition, but more importantly, what thoughts were triggered during that deposition. You lose so much if you don't do that, because you know you can say, well, we get the transcript, we can read the transcript, but that's not the only thing you're trying to document and save. You spend the better part of a week preparing for and taking a deposition. After that deposition is done, the best thing to do is sit down. I'm not talking about a 20-page memo, maybe two pages, maybe it's one page, four or five sometimes, just listing your impressions of the witness. Were they credible? Were they sincere? Were they obnoxious? What kind of witness will they make at trial? What they said, what's our response to that? It not only helps you at trial to document and remember what your thought process was, but it is a tremendous help for the next depot in that case. And I'll give you an example. Most of my cases have more than a dozen witnesses, probably 15, 20, some 30 witnesses. And you might put that file down. We may shelve that file for a month. We may not look at it again for a month. And then all of a sudden, you've got another depot coming up. My example, as we're sitting here now on the table, I have an automotive product liability case. And I've taken two depots in that case. I did memos in both. I've got another one coming up. Well, the nice thing is there have been 15 depots, 20 depots so far in the case. When I prepare for my next deposition, instead of reading all of the depositions, what I can do to get me up to speed is I'll look through 15 or 20 pages of memos about what past witnesses have been deposed, basically what they're saying. And what that does is you may end up still reading some of the depositions, but it really gives you a tremendous savings of time to get up to speed on a file that you haven't looked at in a month or so. That reminds me, rereading a deposition, having not made that memo, is tortuous. And I think the reason is you might have 10 good things, 10 interesting things that happen in that deposition, but it's a 300-page deposition. So 90% of that deposition is not interesting. You never want to think about it. You never want to see it again. So if you fail to make that quick bullet point summary with your thoughts, you'll have to dive into this 300-page monstrosity. Looking through 90% of it doesn't matter. And that is a terrible waste of time. So Eric, the last two things I'm going to combine together, and both of these have really helped me a lot during the course of my career. You're handling multiple cases. You might be working on 20, 30, 50 cases at once. Each case has two dozen witnesses, hundreds of thousands of documents, and it's really hard to keep things straight. It really is. And what I have done over the years, I do it in every case, two files that I create immediately. As soon as a case comes in the door, one is a to-do file, and the other is an issues file. 
And throughout the course of the case, every time there's a motion, every time there's a pleading, every time I'm thinking about it, I might be driving home from work or working in the yard thinking about a particular issue in the case, and I'll dictate a memo on my phone or in an email. And so what I do is, and usually it will come up when you're working on the file, you'll be preparing for a deposition, you're thinking about the case, you're spending a day and a half reviewing and preparing for it. And you might think of four or five pretty good ideas of how you want to address these defenses or how you want to present the case. And when it comes time for trial, a month or two before trial, I'll open up that issues folder. And literally, there will be sometimes a hundred different things, some redundant, but I can at least sort through them. And I have all my thought process that I didn't lose it. In other words, I preserved it. It's in the file. The same thing with to do. You take a deposition and you find out the identity of three more witnesses or two witnesses or the identity of some document. So in every case, you have a permanent file labeled to do, and the other one is issues. The alternative would be to sit down a month or two before trial and try to remember everything you ever thought about a particular case or issues. It's just impossible. And as I said before, when you're in trial, you're more of the 10,000 foot view. You've got multiple witnesses to put on. You're going to hit the high points with each of them. John, your mention of the to-do and issues list, your closing argument ideas, that reminds me I have a file that I set up at the beginning of every case too. And I create it in Microsoft Word. And a lot of people don't know that they have an outline feature in Word. It's called an outline view. And it allows you to prioritize in a tree structure ideas as you're forming them. And so I put all those things together in one file. I call it to-do. It contains anything I might need to do in that case, and it's a place where I collect all my ideas regarding closing argument ideas or jury instructions, investigation needed to be done, research. And so it's a constantly, continually growing document. It's like a living document, and it's awfully nice. I know that you've had this feeling, for sure. When you dig back into these files that you've been creating for the last two years, it's delightful to see all that stuff there. Because if you were asked to recollect it by memory, it would be really impossible. You'd miss lots of that stuff. So it's a gold mine. It's your own thoughts, and it carries forward throughout the case. So that's how I do mine. I just use a Word document, and I keep embellishing it as I go. I also have a closing argument file, any idea I have for close. And I start those in the beginning. Because you don't just think about your cases when you're sitting at your desk. You don't just think about the cases when you're sitting at your desk with the file. I'm thinking now about issues in cases as we're talking about, as we're doing this this podcast. It's so easy to shoot an email to the file with, hey, they argue in this, we might want to think about it. I'll give you another example. I had a railroad crossing case years ago, and I was driving by a crossing, and I saw something at that crossing that really made me think about an issue in my case. And I got on my phone and dictated an email to the file because, you know, you run into things and you see them. I was on vacation in Europe many years ago, and I had a product liability case. It was an underride guard of the trucks. It's on the side of the truck so that cars can't get caught underneath a tractor trailer. And my wife and I were, I forget where we were at. Maybe it was Ireland or Germany. And I started seeing all kinds of trucks that had these guards. And I'm taking pictures of them and because you're thinking about it. You can't just turn on the switch and turn off the switch. As we said before, it's about being creative. It's about getting inspired by something that you're thinking about. And then finally, Eric, the last thing, and it's not last because it's not important. It may be at the top of the list, actually. You got to remember this. You can't do anything without your staff. You really can't. 
and everything you do, your success is dependent in large part on who's helping you. And so you got to remember this, your staff's time is just as important as your time. And you got to figure out ways to lessen the load on your staff. Talk to them all the time, find out if they're having trouble keeping up, talk about getting them more help, talk about maybe you've given them a list of 15 different things to do in a case and you know they're overwhelmed and swamped, talk to them and say, hey, look, maybe we just need to do these three. Let's get those done right now and see where we're at. As your staff goes, your career goes, as far as I'm concerned. So anyway, Eric, those are my tips and suggestions for time management for a plaintiff's lawyer. All right. Well, that concludes our podcast on time management. I'm John Simon. I'm Eric Beef. Good to see you. We'll see you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune into other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom and Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.